Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 25, Daniel chapter 9. We only just began to study Daniel chapter 9 last week, and after reading it, we immediately noticed two things. The first part of the chapter is a beautiful, sincere, and passionate plea by Daniel to the Lord to accept his confession and repentance on behalf of his fellow Jews for their many sins against the Lord. That is, then followed by one of the most challenging mind-blowing, frustratingly ambiguous in times prophecies that has led to extreme divisiveness in the church as to its interpretation. The prophecy of the 70 weeks. Let's begin with the easier part. The, the more lovely part first. Daniel's prayer. And I especially enjoy this part because I get to be a little bit preachy over it. So let's Reread Daniel 1 through 19. 1 through 19. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it is page 1111. Daniel 9, verse 1. In the first year of Daryavesh, the son of Akashvarosh, a Mede by birth who was made king over the kingdom of the Kostim, the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, was reading the scriptures and thinking about the number of years which Adonai had told uh, Jeremiah, the, uh, Jeremiah, the prophet, would be the period of Jerusalem's desolation, 70 years. I turned to Adonai God to, sing an, to seek an answer, pleading with him in prayer with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I prayed to Adonai my God and made this confession. Please, Adonai, great and fearsome God, who keeps his covenant and extends grace to those who love him and observe his commandments. We have sinned, done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, turned away from your mitzvot, your commandments, your rulings. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our leaders, our ancestors, to all the people in the land. To you, Adonai, belongs righteousness, but to us today belongs shame. To us, the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, including those nearby and those far away, throughout all the countries where you've driven them, because they broke faith with you. Yes, Adonai, shame falls on us, on our kings, our leaders, our ancestors, because we sinned against you. It is for Adonai, our God, to show compassion and forgiveness because we rebelled against him. We didn't listen to the voice of Adonai, our God, so that we would live by his laws, which he presented to us through his servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel flouted your Torah, turned away, unwilling to listen to your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the Torah of Moses, the servant of God, was poured out on us because we sinned against him. He carried out the threats he spoke against us, against our judges who judged us, by bringing upon us disaster so great that under all of heaven nothing has been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. 
As written in the Torah of Moses, this whole disaster came upon us. Yet we did not appease Adonai our God by renouncing our wrongdoing and discerning your truth. So Adonai watched for just the right moment to bring this disaster upon us. For Adonai our God was just in everything he did. Yet we didn't listen when he spoke. Now Adonai our God who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a strong hand thereby winning renown for yourself as is the case today we sinned. We acted wickedly. Adonai in keeping with all your justice please allow your anger and your fury to be turned away from your city Jerusalem your holy mountain because it's due to our sins and the wrongdoings of our ancestors that Jerusalem and your people have become objects of scorn among everyone around us. Therefore our God listen to the prayer and pleadings of your servant and cause your face to shine on your desolated sanctuary for your own sake. My God Turn your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see how desolated we are, as well as the city which bears your name. For we plead with you, not because of our own righteousness, but because of your compassion. Adonai hear. Adonai forgive. Adonai, pay attention and don't delay action for your own sake, my God, because your city and your people bear your name. There's a significant enough depth to Daniel's prayer that there are a number of God principles in it that we'll discuss that are highlighted in it. The time setting is that Media Persia has conquered Babylon. So the second stage of prophetic fulfillment of the three versions given in Daniel the one to King Nebuchadnezzar and then the two visions to Daniel has come about. The first stage was the emergence of Babylon as the first Gentile world empire that had a gold of Nebuchadnezzar's dream statue. But now, Babylon's reign as the first Gentile world empire has given way to the second world empire of the Medes and the Persians. And that is symbolized by the statue's chest and arms of silver, also by the bear beast, and also by the ram with two horns. Now to be clear, it's not that the four Gentile world empires depicted in these visions represent all the Gentile world empires that would ever exist in history. Rather, it is from Daniel's time forward to the end times. That's what's being dealt with. Nothing that came before Daniel's time is included. Thus, for instance, the Assyrian Empire that preceded the Babylonian Empire has no place in this prophecy. And the reality is that after the Fourth Empire Rome, there were other wide-ranging world empires constructed by the, the French and the British and the Spanish. But so far as I can tell, none of those particular Gentile empires have any direct relevance to the prophecies put forth in Daniel, but others might disagree to, to some degree or another with that viewpoint. It was only after, only months after the fall of Babylon, just months, 
that when, when these events of Daniel chapter 9 occurred, and the Lord saw fit to give us a pretty definitive time frame for it by recording that Daniel is speaking during a time that's within the first 12 months of King Darius the Mede's reign. This means it's about 538 B.C. Now this date is important because the overriding premise for chapter 9 is that Daniel is thinking about the prophesied 70 years of exile in Babylon and wondering, is it coming to an end? But he's concerned. Because if the 70 years is expiring, there ought to be some kind of significant circumstance occurring. Maybe maybe near to occurring. That would be tangible that it would indicate that this time has arrived. Nothing was happening other than Media Persia was now in control of the Jews. See, here's the thing to keep in view. Daniel, of course, knew how to count years with precision. He was living and working among the foremost calendar experts of his day the astronomers and scientists known in our Bibles as the Chaldeans. <coughs> Discerning days and months and years, this was no mystery whatsoever. All the modern era discord with Christian and Jewish scholarship about the correctness or inaccuracies of biblical calendars, did they operate on a lunar year, a solar year, a hybrid solar lunar year and so on. This wasn't an issue for Daniel. Whatever was the accepted norm is what he practiced. So it is self-evident by his thoughts that are expressed in verse 2 of chapter 9 that by his calculation he thought it might be time for the exile of the Jews to Babylon to be coming to an end. But he wasn't sure. Why, of all people, couldn't Daniel be sure when the period of 70 years of exile was going to be over? Because first, he couldn't be 100% certain if the 70 years of Jeremiah's prophecy was even indicating a precise period of time. And thus indicated an indefinite, unknowable period of time. Second, because upon what date might God have determined was the start date of the exile from which the 70 years would be calculated, assuming the 70 years was a literal and precise 70 years. In other words, did God reckon the 70 year exile began upon the first attack by Nebuchadnezzar upon Judah in about 606 BC that was when Daniel and his friends and, and, and others were personally hauled off to Babylon might it have been the second attack just a few years later in 597 BC when much damage was done to Jerusalem and another and larger wave of captives was taken to Babylon Perhaps it was the third attack in 587 or 586 B.C. when the temple was plundered and destroyed and the remaining leadership and an even greater portion of the Jewish population was taken to Babylon. Or maybe it was none of the above. 
Instead, it was some other occasion that took place between perhaps 606 and 586 B.C. that God counted as the beginning of the exile. Who knew? See, this was Daniel's dilemma. No doubt he hoped it was the first invasion when he was taken captive in 606 B.C. because it was now 538 B.C. So it would only be a year maybe or so before the Jews would be released to go home. But at the other end of the scale, if God counted the beginning date of the exile as when the Jerusalem temple was destroyed in 586 B.C., man, he had another two decades to wait. And because he was perhaps near 80 years old, the odds are low that he'd be alive to see that day 20 years later and even lower that he'd survive the journey home if he was still living. So a lot was at stake for Daniel in the most personal possible way. And I tell you truly, Daniel's dilemma is the same dilemma for the same reasons that's going to face us when we begin to examine the second part for chapter 9 about the prophecy of the 70 weeks. Now it's interesting that Daniel says in verse 2 that he was reading the books about the number of years that Jeremiah predicted for exile. What books? The Hebrew word that's used here is sephirim. And it by no means always indicates the term holy scriptures or just scriptures that some Bibles, like our complete Jewish Bible, has adopted. However, it does make it obvious that Jeremiah's words had been written down. And probably Isaiah's as well. Because Isaiah had something to say about the Jews' exile and release. So the point is that these inspired words that we today call the Bible were recorded in written form called Sephirim books prior to Daniel's time. They were no longer only being handed down by word of mouth, told as stories from generation to generation as it had been several hundred years earlier. Thus, when we read in the book of Daniel that Daniel wrote down his visions and he pondered them, we can take him at his word because it had become the norm for the Hebrews to do that for quite some time now. Verse 3 explains that the attitude of Daniel in prayer to God was one of mourning. So, as with all Jewish mourning customs, he donned the traditional garment of mourning, sackcloth. He splayed ashes over his head and he did not eat. He fasted. Now, even though chapter 9 is written in Hebrew, as opposed to chapters 2 through 7, which were written in Aramaic. This was in order to express that the focus had shifted from Gentiles to Jews. The verse makes it clear that the God that Daniel directed his sorrowful prayers to was the Lord God of Israel. It's interesting, though, that having been in Babylon for so long, 
he no longer addressed the Lord by his formal name, Yudhevave, Eove, but rather by the more generic Adonai Elohim, Lord God. No doubt, because it it was more politically correct, more socially acceptable to do so in that foreign place. Now, as, as the prayer begins. In addition to its majesty and its sincerity, we need to pay attention to its elements. That is, we have a proper confession accompanied by a repentant attitude. And then, certain important attributes of God are also described. For instance, Daniel describes God as great and dreadful. Then in the next words from his mouth, Daniel says that God keeps his covenant and extends grace to those who love him and keep his commandments. So much is reinforced about God's nature for us in these few words and we need to pay attention to them very closely. See, Daniel has set up essentially what scholars call a merism. Merism. A common example of merism in our modern world, modern world is to say we've taken care of everything from A to Z. In other words, from the beginning to the end and then every conceivable thing in between. Thus a merism is constructed by establishing the two extremes. A and Z, for instance, is the first and the last letters of the alphabet with the understanding that although it's not spoken, there's much contained in between these two extremes and, and it's all-inclusive. That's a merism. So at one end of the scale, of everything that makes up God's nature, Daniel says there is God's attribute of being great and dreadful. Great doesn't mean wonderful. Great means all-powerful. It means unstoppable, something that cannot be opposed. Dreadful, we understand, is terrible, frightening. So, God can be dreadful if need be, and we are powerless to stop it or to avoid it. And at the other end of the scale of God's nature, Daniel says, is God's faithfulness to keep whatever covenant he has made and to show grace. And then we have all the unspoken attributes and shades of gray of God's nature in between those two extremes. So for modern Christians to say God is love is no more correct or incorrect than for another one to say God is wrath. God is not predominantly or only love. Or is he predominantly or only wrath? He's both. And he's all. And that hasn't changed because Christ has died on the cross for us. The Hebrew word for grace or mercy or loving kindness, depending on your Bible version, is chesed. And it means all of those English words and more. It is a supremely positive attribute that comes from a selfless love. But there's a significant caveat included for when God displays his chesed. Notice to whom 
God keeps covenant and demonstrates chesed, grace, mercy, loving kindness. It is to those who love Him and obey His commandments. All throughout the Bible, we hear of those two requirements to receive God's mercy, grace, and kindness coupled together. We must love Him and we must obey Him. To love and obey. To love and obey. Over and over again we hear it. For to obey God is to show love to Him. And to show love to Him is accomplished by our obedience to Him. That's how it works. What does obedience to Him mean? How do we demonstrate obedience to God? Repeatedly, the Old Testament and the New Testament states we do this by obeying His commandments. What commandments? His written ones, of course. The Bible doesn't know of any other commandments. And yet, much of modern Christianity says that's no longer true. Our obedience to God is demonstrated by some kind of subjective, undefined, fully customized set of rights and wrongs that God has given to each of us individually through His Holy Spirit. What is sin for you isn't sin for me. And vice versa. And this set of rights and wrongs may actually be contrary to His biblical covenants and His commandments because those covenants and commandments were done away with by Jesus on the cross. And as I was reminded once again at a recent speaking engagement, it can't be pointed out often enough to a modern Christian or Messianic that Christ himself strongly refuted any such notion that his advent or his life or his death somehow abolished the Torah and then replaced it with something else. So with only mild apologies, I present you once again with something we must all put to memory and use as foundational scripture. Words that Yeshua spoke in the midst of his most famous speech, that one that we call the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, 17 through 19, it says this, Don't think that I've come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I've come not to abolish, but to complete. Yes, indeed, I tell you that until heaven and earth passes away, not so much as a uter or a stroke will pass from the Torah. Not until everything that must happen has happened. So whoever disobeys the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever obeys them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Did Christ abolish the Torah? Well, he says he didn't. Did Paul, oh here we go, did Paul say the Torah is abolished? Even if you find a statement from Paul that you think means that he says the Torah is abolished, I want to ask you a question. So let's frame this a little different way. 
If Christ says no and Paul says yes, what do we have? Beyond a problem. And assuming that would be the case, whose judgment are you going to accept on the matter? The master or his student? That's not fun to think about, is it? But I can also tell you with the firmest confidence that Paul never said the Torah was abolished. It's a sad misunderstanding and misinterpretation of his words. However, will the commandments of the Torah ever pass away? Which the New Testament does seem to indicate? Absolutely. Yes. Because Yeshua said they will. And it will happen, He says, when heaven and earth pass away. And indeed, heaven and earth are going to pass away as Revelation 21 says so forthrightly. In Revelation 21.21 it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth because the old heaven and the old earth had passed away. And the sea was no longer there. Hmm. At that moment, the Torah and the prophets finally pass away. Christ didn't say the Torah passed away at His crucifixion. And certainly upon His death, heaven and earth didn't pass away. Why no more Torah once heaven and earth pass away and we get a new one? Because the Torah was created for one thing only. To deal with sin. To deal with sin. It was to show us what sin is. What the cost is. What's right and wrong in God's eyes. And in turn, we're told to create transgressions. Upon the new heaven and earth, sin won't even be a possibility. There can never again be transgressions against the Lord. So humanity will have finally become fully transformed and perfected to the ideal point that evil, wickedness, and death have vanished from the universe. Now there's no more need for a Torah. Wow! That's good news. But Daniel also says that the Lord keeps covenant. In other words, when the Lord makes a covenant, it remains. It's permanent. He doesn't rescind it. The covenant with Noah to never again destroy the earth by flood wasn't abolished by the next covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant wasn't abolished by the next covenant after that. The Mosaic Covenant. And the Mosaic Covenant was not abolished by the next covenant. The renewed covenant sealed and sanctified by Christ's blood. Each covenant is different. Each one is used and efficacious for its own specific purpose. And all four, I assure you, are alive and well. They don't conflict with one another. They complement one another. 
The final covenant, the renewed covenant that we typically call the new covenant, didn't void the law. Christ said it didn't. You know what it did do? It enabled a deeper devotion to the law in the spirit it had always been intended. That's what it did. Verse 5 has Daniel using a variety of words now in order to try to cover the range of, of types and seriousness of sin. Dr. Keel says that this is Daniel's exhaustive expression of a consciousness of sin and guilt. And Daniel doesn't separate himself from his people. As a Jew in Babylon who once lived in Judah despite his biblical portrayal as a wonderfully pious man, he still counts himself as equally sinful, as equally responsible for the consequence of this exile as any other Jew. And what is Daniel's stated definition of sin? Turning aside from God's commandments and judgments. Judgments meaning decisions or verdicts. In verse 6, he confesses on behalf of himself and for his fellow Judahites that God sent his prophets to warn that if they didn't pay attention and turn away from their ways, that divinely sent catastrophe would be the result. And those prophets didn't speak only to kings in private settings. They also spoke to the tribal leaders and to generations long past so that plenty of time was given to ponder and to change. They also took their messages of warning to the common folks of the land. Everyone knew. Everyone. Everyone had an opportunity to turn. Daniel and all the exiled Jews were without excuse. And there is no issue, Daniel says, of whether God wasn't perhaps quite right or fair with his judgment. Because Daniel says God is inherently righteous. And while the Jewish people, as well as the Israelites, meaning the now scattered ten tribes of the northern kingdom of Ephraim, Israel, are the result of their rebellion, they're at the other end of the spectrum. They are shame itself. Verse 11 emphasizes that all Israel, all Israel is represented in Daniel's powerful confession. So here Daniel is confessing and repenting on behalf of even the ten tribes that are long gone. They're not with the Jews in Babylon. So even though nearly two centuries has passed since the ten northern tribes, sometimes called the ten lost tribes, were removed from their land and scattered by the Assyrians and have by now mostly melded into the countless Gentile cultures and civilizations of Asia, Daniel's not forgotten about them. And essentially, says Daniel, all that's happened is that the curse that was written into the law of Moses for its violation has been poured out upon its violators. What could be more natural? Something that all Israel ought to have expected rather than being shocked when it happened. 
ecclesia, fellowship, church? Do you still think that because you are believers that you are immune from violating God's laws and suffering for it? That upon your salvation you want to get out of jail free card? The same Christ who explicitly has tried to tell us that the law remains alive and well also gave us this sobering warning in Matthew 7, 21-23. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who do what my Father in heaven wants. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we expel demons in your name? Didn't we perform many miracles in your name? And then I'll tell them to their faces, I never knew you. Get away from me, you workers of lawlessness. Get away from me, you workers of lawlessness. What does that mean? Have you ever thought about that? Lawlessness. What law is Christ talking about here? I mean, does he mean those who violate the Roman laws of his day were to be cut off from him and from God? Is that what he meant? In our day, does that mean we're going to be judged by Messiah for salvation on whether we obey our national or our local law codes? Many of which, by the way, are in opposition with one another. And worse, in opposition to God's morality code. Does it mean if we go 45 in a 35 mile per hour zone, we are subject to being rebuked into eternity by Christ because that's lawlessness? Obviously not. Rather, law in the Bible is always only referring to one of two things. The laws of Moses, or alternately and sometimes, when Paul is speaking, the laws of Judaism man-made tradition. So is Yeshua advocating that He will disown us if we violate Jewish rabbinical law? Traditions of the elders, He sometimes calls it. Again, of course not. Well, if lawlessness is not referring to human government laws, it's not referring to rabbinical laws, it's not referring to Sharia law, that only leaves us with one possibility the laws of Moses the Torah the laws that God gave us from heaven what other law would the Jewish Messiah be speaking about to fellow Jews than the laws of Moses what other laws would Christ judge you and me by other than the laws his father set down. So let me slightly rephrase his response for those living in modern times. Better, I think, making the point that it meant. So hear this. I never knew you. Get away from me, you workers of Torahlessness. Let those who have ears hear. Verse 13 brings up 
another important feature of God's nature. He will warn us when we are living a lifestyle lifestyle of sin and He will give us an opportunity to change. As Daniel says, the Lord spoke through His prophets exactly what He would do if Israel refused to listen to His warnings. All they had to do was stop sinning. Begin obeying and then He'd show them favor. What is it they say? If you find yourself in a deep hole, put down the shovel and stop digging. God is a God of justice. So He must punish unrepentant sin. At the same time, He's a God of forgiveness, a God of great mercy. And He will be moved by a contrite heart sincerely changed behavior and He won't send upon us the evils that we deserve. And after Daniel has confessed all on behalf of the Israelites, all Israelites, he arrives at the basis for his appeal. He is counting on God being a God of unchanging patterns. I ran across a wonderfully, a rather a wonderful but anonymously written paraphrase on this passage that I think best exemplifies what Daniel is asking of the Lord. He says this, O God, who in times past has brought about wonderful deliverances for your people and in so doing acquired a glorious name, repeat your wondrous doings. Add to the glory which you've already required as you did when you brought us out of the exile from Egypt, so also bring us out of the exile from Babylon. That's the essence of it. Even more because God is righteous, because He is a God of unchanging patterns, now that Judah has served its allotted time in exile, And Daniel, as its representative before God, has confessed, has uh, repented, has sought the Lord's forgiveness, then the request is also to end his divine wrath upon his own holy city of Jerusalem. In truth, nothing much remained of Jerusalem, especially of the holy site of the temple, than the cap rock of Mount Moriah. Jerusalem and the temple... How sad. It should have been a light to the world. Set atop a a glorious mountain that even called to the Gentiles. But because of the terrible sins of God's own chosen people, Jerusalem and the temple lay desolate. They stood as nothing more than a monument to rebellion and, 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 and tragedy and disgrace. The final verse of this prayer, verse 19, opens with an enlightening series of three requests. The complete Jewish Bible says they are, Lord, hear. Lord, forgive. Lord, pay attention. In Hebrew, the words are, Adonai Shema, Adonai Soach, Adonai Keshav. Now let's take a little bit closer look to understand what Daniel's actually asking. Shema 
means to listen and to actively respond. Here is a translation that's only correct if the words and do are attached to it. Here is only half the meaning of Shema. Unless the other half is added to do, then the statement loses loses its intended meaning. Salah is a little bit more difficult to explain. It is generally translated into English as either forgive or pardon. And while forgive isn't necessarily wrong and pardon is a, a much better choice, what that means to modern folks isn't quite what the biblical intent is. First, salah is a divine form of pardon. It flows from God to man, not man to man. From the biblical viewpoint, then, a human can't actually offer true salah to another human being. What is being asked by Daniel is not that the sins of the Jews that led to their exile are forgiven, but rather that the consequence for committing those sins is set aside. There's a difference. So in the more technical legal sense, for a criminal to be given a pardon doesn't mean he's had his conviction overturned. He's not gone from having been judged guilty to now being rejudged as innocent. Rather, it's that his punishment for his guilt has been set aside. The guilt of the crime remains. Therefore, in a sense, the pardon is always only partial. Since the sin was real, and since God's justice is sin must always be punished, then for God to offer salah means essentially that the punishment is not so much ended as it is postponed. Daniel's third request, that the Lord kashab, means to just be attentive. It has the sense of somebody kind of leaning in when listening to conversation to show acute interest in what that other person is saying. So Daniel is asking God, first, hear and act on Daniel's request. Second, set aside and postpone Judah's punishment for their sins. And third, to carefully listen, to please be highly interested uh, or maybe focused upon Daniel's confession and display of sincere repentance on behalf of himself and his people so that the Jews might see an end to their exile. And the reason that Daniel thinks is the most important for the Lord God to say yes to his request is that God's own name is upon the holy city of Jerusalem and his holy people of Israel. And because in Judah's current condition of exile and in Jerusalem's current condition of desolation, then God's name is tainted. This in many ways is the Old Testament Testament equivalent of the New Testament Lord's Prayer. It's a model for the attitude that a worshiper of all ages and eras ought to have in true prayer to God.
Let's read a little bit more. Open your Bibles back up to Daniel chapter 9. We're going to read just three verses. 20, 21, 22, 23. I guess that's four verses and I can't count well today. Page 1112 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Starting at verse 20. While I was speaking, praying, confessing my own sin and the sin of my people Israel, pleading with Adonai my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gavriel, Gabriel, whom I had seen in, the, uh, seen in the vision at the beginning, swooped down on me in full flight at about the time of the evening sacrifice. And he explained things to me. And he said, I have come now, Daniel, to enable you to understand this vision clearly. At the beginning of your prayers, an answer was given, and I have come to say what it is, because you are greatly loved. Therefore, look into this answer and understand the vision. It was during his praying that Daniel gets an unexpected interruption. Gabriel suddenly swoops in to intervene for the purpose of bringing an important message from God. Thus we find that a heavenly angel, follow me here, a heavenly angel is usually a spirit messenger of God's oracle in the same way that a prophet is a human messenger of God's oracle. Duality. This passage says that it was the man, Gabriel, who appeared to Daniel. The Hebrew term used is ish. And it indeed means a male human. Now no doubt the term is used here in order to make a connection to to Daniel chapter 8, verse 15, and assure us that this is the same being even though a somewhat different Hebrew word is used there to describe Daniel, uh, describe Gabriel in chapter 8. In chapter 8, 15 it says, After I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was trying to understand it, suddenly there stood in front of me someone who appeared to be a man. However, here in chapter 8 of Daniel, the word that's usually translated into English as man is a poor translation. Because the word is not the Hebrew ish, it is gibor. And gibor means mighty man. A title, usually reserved for a renowned warrior leader. And that is a near perfect description of Gabriel. A renowned warrior leader. Nonetheless, the connection is that in both cases, Gabriel has a human male appearance. It is the same being in chapter 8 and chapter 9. Now, there is scholarly disagreement by what is meant when we're told that Gabriel flew swiftly or flew into weariness or something like that. Almost every Bible version, and I checked a lot of them, has their own way of translating these words. But the general idea seems to be that Gabriel had to fly a long way, very quickly, on short notice in order to get where God wanted him to be. And where was that? By Daniel's side. In other words, the mission was urgent. 
He came at the time of the evening sacrifice. Or in, in, in Hebrew, Erev Mincha. Erev Mincha. Which probably is around 3 to 4 in the afternoon. Which only adds to this drama. Now make no mistake, there was no actual evening sacrifice going on here. It's only that this was the normal time of day that the Erev Mincha, the evening altar sacrifice, would have been made if the temple were in operation, which of course it wasn't. And the purpose of Gabriel's sudden appearance was to make Daniel understand something that God wanted him to know. So in verse 23... Gabriel made it known that at the very moment Daniel had begun his prayer of national confession, a word came forth from the Lord for Gabriel to fly to Daniel with that word. This is a true word from the Lord. And what a comforting, what a precious announcement from Gabriel that God did this because He so greatly loved and treasured Daniel. Wouldn't you love to hear that? So Daniel was to understand that he was very special in God's eyes. And it was that special merit that gave Daniel, Daniel this enormous privilege to hear an end times oracle meant only for his ears. Although the verse says that the oracle is coming to Daniel as a vision, the vision is actually Gabriel himself. So it's not like the two earlier visions that Daniel had or the, the, uh, the third one that Daniel had that we'll hear about starting in chapter 10 that are more along <coughs> excuse me, the lines that we're used to hearing uh, about uh, uh, when we hear about biblical visions and dreams. Well, beginning in verse 24, Gabriel begins to explain this confounding prophecy of the 70 weeks. And we're going to devote our time next week to discuss it at length.